Hello, welcome to Off Air. It's your weekly news, pop and culture podcast where two media professionals, Nick Stewart and myself, Tim Rubin, who have worked kind of everywhere, TV, radio, digital media, pull apart our top three favourite stories of the week and give you a little glimpse of what we reckon's going on behind the curtain. And it's actually not just us who make the podcast each week. You help us make it. There is a Facebook group. You can find it. It is called Off Air Podcast Community. Search for it in Facebook and join. And we discuss our topics and get your opinions. This week, we're going to be getting into cancel culture and the media. The big story this week that we're actually not going to do. Plus, India's travel ban. Is it based on the numbers or something a little more sinister? And NAPLAN testing has started this week and the entire of Queensland is trying to boycott it. Let's get into it. What is our mandate? Tim Rubin. It's super creepy to reanimate somebody's dead father for their birthday. Nick Stewart. I really leaned into trying to get radicalised by ISIS. You're listening to Off Air. I believe it's this. Happy birthday. One year of podcast, episode 52. sound effects into the game. Wow. Tim Rubin, my goodness. And I have just, I got a hurried phone call from you saying you had a very confused Uber Eats driver downstairs. And I have a beautiful little box in front of me that says totally baked from Grand Central in Toowoomba. And it fe- I'm not going to lie to you, feels very heavy. Um, Open her up. Open her up, big boy. Oh, it's a series of muffins. Is it muffins? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I thought from the name Totally Baked it was going to be I, I was I was trying to get you a pound and a half of weed just to <laughs> just well, just to Joe Rogan this podcast, Elon yeah, Musk. Those would have been appreciated. Probably preferably the muffins after the pound and a half of weed. Mm. Uh, <laughs> um happy 1 year birthday. Um it's we've been going for slightly longer than a year in terms of calendar length, but this is episode 52, so I think this is Oh, you're smelling the muffins? Don't. No, I'm going to eat some. Well, don't put food in front of me. You know me, Tim. I'm horrible. Um, I'm meant to be on a diet at the moment. This is terrible. I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, episode 52. So a year ago, we had conversations over the phone, and I uh, basically forced you into doing a podcast with me under the guise of you will have to do nothing. Mm. And uh, and now, a, a year later, I said, do, th- what did I say? Do three? You were like, I don't want to do it. And I was like, do three. And then just, I was like, this is the idea. You don't have to do anything. Just literally put your headphones on and sit in this room. And let's, I think it was three. Do three and let's decide. Yep. And one year later, are you still on? You're probably the same level of on the fence. I'm on the fence still, honestly. But I mean, it's like, I enjoy seeing you every week. So it's a good excuse to talk to a friend. I don't know about the whole podcast side of it, but (laughs) (laughs) I really enjoy it. It's something I really look forward to every single week. and And I really enjoy chatting to you, but also hearing your opinions in the um in the closed facebook group as well the off air uh, podcast community group on facebook that's uh, that's been on. the biggest game changer i reckon because it started off as a conversation between me and you each week and mm. at some point it grew we built the um podcast group it's not a facebook page it's a group so that we mm. could have discussions each week and i think that that's the biggest thing is like i feel like i've learned so much about the people in the group and their opinions and everything as well so yeah, I've I've enjoyed that as well. Yeah, and it always reinforces the good things of humanity when we all can come together and have 
healthy conversations and healthily disagree. I think that that's such an amazing thing and it's something that we all need to work on and get better at. I did have to step in this week. Do you see the comments when I tell people to stop arguing like an angry parent? Thought you came in a bit early. I like the way they re- that, that that people respond like their children. <laughs> I, 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 it wasn't me; it was the other guy. Yeah, oh, wow. we're all four in the group sharing opinions, but I don't. You can't get, like once it gets to any type of name calling or calling other people out. I'm like, ah, ah, ah we'll, we'll just pause <laughs> it there. Um, can we have a chat about your kidneys? Because quite a few people reached out to me last week and were very distressed. <laughs> we can chat about my kidneys. Um, I had to go back in. I had an appointment at the hospital on Monday with a, it's called a nephrologist in the renal team. And they looked at my results, uh, renal, this is all kidney, all means kidney basically. Um, and they looked at the, uh, last test results and the previous test results were, as I've said before, were not great. Mm. And they said, um, but all of those tests had been done in a very short space of time when I had first presented about a month ago at the emergency room. And um, they said they can't really make a big call on it until we do another round of tests. So did a whole other round of blood tests on Monday and then got a call yesterday saying that the kidneys are back in action, baby. (laughs) They are working. They have healed themselves. And it's such a, such a weight off my shoulders. It was the best phone call. Best phone call. It would have been fantastic because you were concerned and you were very open last week when we had a conversation and said, I don't really know where this is going. Mm. Uh, and it was scary in general. You looked like shit. A, a, a month ago, four weeks ago, mm. you looked, looked bad. So you you look better. You were out hiking on the weekend, which is something I know you enjoy. Yeah. More so than the rest of the population. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I'm glad to see you doing well. Yeah, it's it's all good news. And it's it's one of those funny things, like it really is something that puts things in perspective when you go through something like that. And there's a mm. quote that I've heard that I can't remember where it comes from, but it's um uh your average person wants a thousand things, a sick person wants one thing. And as soon as you're experiencing that, you just want to be healthy. Um and to have that big thing looming over you and and not know um because we never got a diagnosis for that whole month of time, it just is on your mind 24-7. Oh, so, I can't imagine, yeah. Um, yeah. So what did you learn about? Uh, anti, anti <laughs> Don't take too many. It's a real thing. Yeah. <laughs> so those anti-inflammatories basically damaged my stomach lining and my kidney, and my kidney took longer to heal. So that's why the uh, previous test results had all shown that my kidney mm. was still not working, and they were thinking that maybe it was some type of other thing. Um, but no, it just took a little bit longer. Who Wild. would have thought? Well, they have to have some negative impact. I mean, you can't just, I'm the least inflamed man on the planet. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Should we get into it? Yeah, let's do it. Story number one. I got sent a story this week by my friend Matt, who listens to the podcast. I'm going to tell you the story that he sent me, but we're not going to do that story, Nick. This is not story number one. I'm just going to tell you. (laughs) Oh, okay. All right. I'm going to tell you what he sent me, and then I'm going to... Of Matt. <laughs> and then I'm going to tell you what we're going to do for story number one. He sent okay. me this. He sent me a link. It said, uh, it was from Channel 7 News. Is Snow White getting cancelled? Uproar over Disneyland rides, lack of consent in True Love's Kiss. Not story number one. Okay. 
What's the, where, where's story number one? I wrote, I wrote back to him and I said, I want you to read up on the cancel fairy bread story, which is a story that I don't think that enough people are aware of and is a story that I think answers a lot of these other headlines like said story about Snow White that we are not going to delve hugely into. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I want to talk about the cancel fairy bread story. Have you heard of cancel fairy bread? Yes. Yeah, I am very aware of cancel fairy bread. Uh, and it's a great story. Uh, and it's a great case study in how our media works. Mm. So um, the Chasers, which... Uh, most people would remember from their ABC TV show, The Chasers, they're an Aussie comedy group. They wanted to highlight how much the media is latching on to cancel culture stories at the moment. And the best way that they thought to do that was to make up their own one. And so they came up with the idea of a cancel fairy bread campaign that they were going to fake. So they anonymously put out a press release um, saying that Fairy Bread was going to be cancelled. They launched a fake change.org petition and they asked their followers on Twitter to sign it. So it got a couple hundred followers. They didn't get any follow-up or inquiries from any media organization. Nobody reached out and followed up the press release to get any type of information, interview, anything. Instead, the story just blew up completely on its own. Again, no fact-checking. Straight away... News.com, 2GB, Daily Telegraph, Herald Sun, Lad Bible, and Pedestrian had all published fairy bread being cancelled articles. Nick, why are we obsessed with cancelling things at the moment? Well, I don't think we are. I think the media is. And I hate to say the media. I should say mainstream media or traditional media formats are so desperate to hold on to their audience, which is disintegrating by the second. Mm. They are going, essentially, uh, uh, there's a line in a Drake song that I really love. And it, it goes roughly along the, the, the lines of, he's made millions by making the world feel something. And that's sort of what media does. All media is trying to do is it elicit an emotional response from you. And because they are so desperately trying to hold on to a dying audience, they are going for shock and awe above anything else. It was actually really interesting because I got to watch that whole story play out in real time. Because when I first saw an article on it, I immediately went to the change.org page and went to the Facebook profile who created because you have to show, you have to display the Facebook profile that, that creates a change.org. Okay. And it was so fake. Like the profile was the fakest profile the blatantly fake. Uh, and I didn't at that stage know the chasers were behind it, but I immediately went, well, this is bullshit. It's mm-hmm. got 500. And most of the 500 signatures had only signed up so that they could comment and call the person a dickhead because apparently you have to sign the petition to comment on it. Ah. So people were signing the petition so that they could abuse the person who in their mind had put it up as this crazy idea. Uh-huh. To see it all of a sudden on Sky News and Pedestrian and blah, blah, and blah, 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 blah. And then later that night, the tweet from the chaser saying that it was actually theirs. It was fantastic. But I think it's like I said at the start, we are not obsessed with cancel culture. Everyday Australians don't really give a shit about cancel culture. It is uh, traditional media trying to elicit emotional responses by going for the absolute slap in the face, slap you in the face with a fish shock value type reaction. It's it's wild. But when you say 
that traditional media are the ones trying to elicit a response and that regular people are not obsessed with cancel culture. Media is not going to create the media is not going to create a story unless people are going to respond to it. So when you say we aren't obsessed, the media is obsessed. The media isn't actually obsessed with anything. The media at the moment is obsessed with creating things that generate clicks and attract eyeballs. So if it does generate clicks and attract eyeballs, which it clearly does because we keep on seeing it, Mr. Potato Head, uh, Noddy, Snow White now, the list goes on and on, then people are obsessed with it whether we like it or not. And the fact that you said that there were 500 or whatever signatures and most of them were on there to complain about it says that people are interested because if they didn't care, they wouldn't have clicked and they wouldn't have signed. So, no, 500, so 500 seems like a lot if you're putting together a um, 21st birthday. Yeah, okay. But when you compare it to the population of Australia, it's, it's, it's a tiny, tiny percentage of people that wanted to interact with that. And secondly, I, I, I see the point you're making but I would counter that by saying once people read something in a news.com article for the untrained eye, that legitimizes it. Yeah. And I think journalists first and foremost have a duty of care, which they have been completely neglecting for a long time to actually fucking debunk and fact check the articles well, that they are. To you, it sounds like five minutes. If that. If that, the second I went on the change.org thing, I was like, well, this is bullshit. Because at first <laughs> I, was, I saw the news.com article and went, what the fuck is this? Like, there's no way. Like, how, what kind of, I, I fell for it. I fell for the clickbaity outrageousness. Mm. And then looked at it and went, oh, no, it's just some, uh, it's just someone trying to cause shit, essentially. To put it in perspective, though, when you say, what the fuck is this outrageousness? Did you know that fairy penguins are not called fairy penguins anymore? They, <laughs> I learned this when I was in Tasmania. We went to a, uh, so my favorite penguin, as I've said for the last many years, is the little penguin, which is oh, what, well known. Which, well is, known. <laughs> which is a breed of penguin. And we yeah. went to, we were staying in, um, in this, this lovely place on the coast, um, and there was a penguin, uh, it was like a penguin nesting area and you could go at night and you could see there was a viewing platform and there was like a little talk about them. And I said, oh, I'm really excited to see, I think these are, these are going to be little penguins. And, and um, Ellie's dad said, oh, well, they used to be called fairy penguins. And I thought that they were two separate breeds. Yeah. And, and then we, I Googled it and it turns out he was totally right. Um uh, fairy penguin was called fairy penguin updated to little penguin because of because they didn't want to be too on the nose as a name so when you say it's like outrageous you, you can google this now if you want to check i but no i believe you but i think that is outright why the penguins yeah. gay like are they gay penguins is well that... penguins are actually one of the gayest species <laughs> <laughs> They've been known to to make, to to partner up for life with with male and male. They they've tracked this on the, in in the zoos. Is that where the name came from? Was it because the little penguins are particularly gay, or I think it's just because they're cute and they look like little fairies. So why is that wrong? See, I, I don't know. I, so now I, I, we're getting sucked yeah. in. No, I think there's a freedom of. I, this goes back to a way, way deeper, more interesting conversation, which is around cancel culture, because a lot of the people that, that are dry or perceived to be driving cancel culture are what you would 
uh, call social justice warriors, right. or as, as you've coined them, and, and I love it, performative activists. Yeah. Uh, and that's where it gets really interesting because these people on a base level want to make the world better, better and they want to uh, fight for equality and strive for equality for all people. But by doing that, they are actually uh, sort of eroding free yeah. speech and making specific words wrong or bad, which is in turn persecuting people or creating uproar or hurting their cause. And it's a really strange little net that we've been caught in. I th- I don't know why it happens though. Do you think it happens because we don't want to deal with real issues in our life? Or do you think it happens like it's way easier for people to get mad that fairy bread's called fairy bread and then for people to get mad that fairy bread's not called fairy bread? Or do you think it's because people genuinely care about these issues? Yeah, I I was actually thinking about this. I think that people get, I think that social justice warriors um, get on their high horse um, because it's there's a sense of control that you can actually um, mm. experience um, that you can't experience when you want to take on a bigger issue. So, for example. Um, you can make a difference if you, you know, if you create a petition and say, I want to change fairy bread, you're going to be in news.com. Like people are going to be talking about it. Some, some, you might actually be able to change the name of something. You, Mm. you can't as one person or you can, because I don't want to be too nihilistic, but it's much, much harder to try and solve, um, or try and, uh, to, to try and fix problems like, um, the rate of gay bashings, for example. Well, the results are less evident, right? Like, I I, I know what you're saying. and Or or to try to help with the environment. Right. But but your results are way less evident and there's a lot less of, like, a pat on the back for doing that. Yeah. Or the same would be – or the same probably for, like, trans – aggressions and and trans attacks or trans or gay suicides like those those challenges are so much bigger that it's so much harder for people to try and actually make any imprint on whereas you can get behind this cause that something needs to be changed i i do disagree though when you said that um it erodes free speech i do think that a lot of these things are very important and we've spoken about some of them on the show and i think like changing the name of Coon cheese. I think that that was a really great idea. I, I I don't want to lump cancel culture into everything that gets cancelled or everything that gets changed is bad. I actually agree with a huge number of them, but it is interesting. We have a real obsession with it at the moment. I would say that it's almost potentially the Y two K of twenty twenty one. Well, I think, mate, I think you'll find coronavirus is probably the Y two K twenty twenty. No, 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 because coronavirus is real. <laughs> No, I agree, but it's there's nothing black and white in this world, mm. right? Everything is on a scale. And so, so yes, uh, rightfully so, Bill Cosby should be cancelled. Correct. Should Eddie Murphy's uh, stand-up special Raw mean that Eddie Murphy is cancelled now, even though that was from, you know, 1987 right. or whatever it was? So I think everything needs to be put into a, a level of appropriateness that is right. I think it probably also comes down to a young generation who feel um, like their future won't be better than their parents. And that's the first time in a very long time that that has been the case in the history of the world. 
essentially every single generation feels like they are going to have the opportunity to live a better life than their parents. And I think that 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 that, that has been lost a little bit for a number of financial reasons and a number of um, situational or environmental reasons. And maybe this is a bit of a fuck you to people from yeah, an older and, and, and a level of power. And some, you know, some level, some minuscule level of power, because like you said, generationally, previously, um, our parents or our grandparents' generation, when you were coming into your 30s or your 40s, that was the generation that was essentially starting to take control of the world because the previous generation at 70 was kind of starting to move off. But now Mm. 70-year-olds are owning a huge amount of property. They're still in control. They're still running businesses. You've got young people who've been in the in industries for quite a long time who aren't actually owning anything yet. So maybe mm. there is a sense of, well, we can finally own something and at least it's a cause, potentially. It's an interesting Possibly. idea. Yeah, it is. But I think it's misspent. I think that there's better ways they could do it. I remember a really interesting documentary uh, and it was about energy and it was about fuel and and they had the general manager or the CEO of uh, Shell on there and he was living in the UK and people had found his uh, home and a bunch of people went and protested on his front lawn and he and his wife actually went outside and offered them all tea and heard them all out and he made the point to them, uh, I also want to make positive change for the world. So I went and got a job at Shell and worked for 30 years so I could become the CEO right. and make meaningful change. And you guys are sitting on my front yard. So I think that, that, that there is a way to performatively try to enact change, but uh-huh. then there is a way to physically enact change as yeah. well. With, with an investment of time and energy over your exactly. whole life. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which is way harder. And we all know our generation. We're not into the hardship. Yeah, I'd rather just cancel the Snow White ride. <laughs> How very dare he kiss her? <laughs> Imagine getting into Cinder Slut, which was the original name of Cinderella. <laughs> what? Are you serious? Yeah, absolutely. Oh my god! Wait, book. The brothers Grimm. <laughs> Who? But what should they be? Should all those be cancelled? Because they are well known to have plagiarized, or like all the brothers Grimm did was learn how to write, and then they stole a bunch of folk tales. I don't know. Story number two. So at the time of recording this, which is Wednesday, um, Australia is currently in a total travel ban with India. The the ban came into effect last Monday as a way of protecting Australia from COVID. And the ban makes it a crime punishable by up to $66,000 as a fine and five years of jail, potentially together for people, including Australian citizens and permanent residents, who have been in India in the last 14 days to enter Australia. Currently, the ban is being contested in federal court with arguments being made that uh, flat-out denying Australians access to Australia is unconstitutional. And it's being said that this is an example of some very overt racism. Nick, COVID is not new, but this is new. This is our first and only travel ban, and it just happens to be with India. Is this... Flat out racism? Yes. Story number three. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I don't think it's overt. I actually think it's covert racism. Um, And it's really, it's a deep-seated subconscious level racism. I don't think that the Australian government thought they were making racist policy when they made it. 
which makes it even worse because it shows how deep seated that is. Um, situations have been bad in other countries in the world and we have not banned uh, Australian citizens from coming back from mm-hmm. those. So I thought it was very interesting um, that, that it was specifically India that we all of a sudden took umbrage with or decided that we couldn't handle that situation. Uh, and it's, it's, an, it's a strange move from a government that loves showboating. The Liberal government, specifically Scott Morrison as their leader, are constantly looking for opportunities for positive PR. And I think he thought and they thought that this would make Australia look, that it would make them look like a tough and responsible Mm. government. But it's actually had the exact opposite effect. And that also shows how far removed our current government is from the everyday Australians. I think they're in a very exclusive small bubble and they're getting their information from a very exclusive small amount of people and they're making consistent errors. Um, So I think it is. Do you think it is? I mean, you were anti us going to Japan last week, so I assume that you're on board with this this, this race policy. Oh, no, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you twisted. <laughs> yeah, I'd already commit to 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 saying yes. No, I think that there's a huge difference between going to play sport for fun um, and giving. Funnily enough, the people that are most affected by this, or it sounds like, are the people that are over there but playing sport. For some fun. of them are there playing sport for fun. So look. <laughs> <laughs> You've got me in a bind. Um, no, I do. I think that it's racist. I think um, I think it's very interesting. I like your point about it actually being much more, or in, it was potentially intended to be much more covert, um, and they might not have realised how overt it was. Um, you also made a point about the fact that um, we've seen some really bad numbers in some other countries, and we haven't done that, done this before. And I actually uh, did a little bit of research on that. So to give some perspective, in India at the moment, the seven-day average of COVID cases is 387,000 new cases per day. Um, The seven-day average of deaths is 3,900 per day. Um, On January, oh, and India have 1.3 billion people. On January 14 this year, and we've got a travel ban, January 14 this year, uh, America recorded 4,327 deaths in one day. So that's... uh, More than their weekly average. Four, five hundred more in that day than than India's uh, deaths per day. And over seven days, they were averaging 250,000 new cases. America has about 300 million people, which is one billion people less. Yeah, than India. So proportionally, yeah, not, they're not gonna. They're never going to ban America because they're our closest ally. Which which feeds back into the point at the start of why all of a sudden is it different for India? Mm. Well, I mean, you say that they're our closest ally, but if you were to look at the percentage of a population, Australia would probably have much closer ties with India in terms of how many Indians. Uh, have moved to Australia and how much of a percentage of Australia's population is made up by people from Mm. India compared to people from America. But yeah, proportionally, you would have a huge, a much, much higher chance of getting COVID and and also dying from COVID if you were in America compared to if you were in India. No travel ban for America. Do you feel like there is a perception growing in Australia that Indian people that come here are part of 
a subclass or a a a a real bottom working class level of people. I think that I mean it sounds awful. I think that you're yeah, right. It, we've it's, it sounds awful. We've spoken about this on the podcast before. I think it's come up largely uh, when we were talking about Uber delivery drivers and the rate of death on the road and how they're. Um, I'm not sure what the numbers out right now, but at the time when we delved into it, it was one per week. Um, mm. And a huge percentage of that was uh, made up of Indian in, Indian workers. There is definitely a caste system beginning to form in Australia, and it's really unsettling. Do you think mm. so as well? Yeah, I agree completely. I, I think it is super, super unsettling because it, the primary values that I was raised in believing were Australian was equality for everyone, everyone being able to get a fair go, and the fact that we are the lucky country so that nobody is left behind. And it worries me that these seem to be disappearing because those never should have had anything to do with color or creed or religious belief. And it's worrying that there does seem to that, that capitalism and creating that subclass of people who are just expected to clean or to deliver or to work. It, it It's, it's not something I want to see in Australia. I think that, you know, anybody should be able to accomplish anything regardless of where they were born or how they end up in this country. Um, and I, th- I, I would love to think that the majority of Australians still feel that way as a base principle. Like if you went up to them, I don't think any Australian would say, no, fuck that. We want to have, we want to mm. have a series. So it is, but at the same time, they also go, man, how good is it that I can get my tie delivered on a Friday night and I don't have to put, uh, take my pajamas off. So, you know, it's, it's swings and roundabouts and, it's it's a tough it's tough it's how do you breed that out once it starts to take hold of your culture yeah i think it i think it happens at a governmental level and um i think that despite making fun of scott morrison and despite making fun of the government i mean it's very clear that the government i don't look up to the government personally um mm. i mean the fact that they government workers wanking on each other's desks at work that says to me that these people not people that I should model my life on, but mm. they are the leaders of our country. And that goes beyond just the fact that they make the laws. But I think that uh, the type of laws they make and the way that they lead does actually influence the type of behavior that we see in this country. And it's something that we've spoken about before. I mean, we see uh, politicians wanking on each other's desks and, and we see sexual assault and sexual harassment happening at a parliamentary level. And then the next week we see terrible domestic violence stories in the news and we see a, a woman getting murdered and set on fire in her backyard. There is a flow on effect. Um, and, and I would say that this is the same thing. I would say that uh, seeing laws that literally set Indian Australians apart from the rest of society, that definitely is going to have a flow on effect and, and will have an impact on the mentality and the perspective of a large number of Australians. And it will create that segregation. And that shouldn't exist. And I, I think it's embarrassing that it's there. And a large number of Indian Australians. Like yep. imagine being an Indian Australian and, and being essentially being told by the government who you had an active part in choosing. Yeah. And who you pay taxes to saying that your people uh, from from another country or a place of origin have no right to come and come back into the country. Mm. So I agree with you. It's But I think it, it, the biggest problem is that we have a reactionary government at the moment. They are, they're not, uh, I would say like, it's quite spineless. 
it's quite a spineless government. They're not leading forward with policy that they believe in. No. They're leading forward with policy that they think we believe in. And that's always going to fuck up because they're not getting a good read of what the people actually want. Mm. And so, and so that's for me is more concerning is I think that they're making decisions based on what they think is going to win them votes as opposed to making decisions on what they think is going to be the best move for Australia. And what they think is right. Um, I want to go to some of the Facebook comments. We put this in the Facebook group, uh, off air podcast community. Uh, and I said, is this overt racism? Um, D wrote, it's very jarring to see the way that this has been handled with India compared to other countries. But for me, the most, uh, the worst aspect of this is that the federal state governments are deciding to lock Aussies out of their own country rather than fix hotel quarantine. Mark McGowan mm. is overseeing a quarantine system that's had two leaks in the last three weeks. That number has gone up now. And he's at his press conference yelling about how anyone coming from India should be locked out. Like, bro, fix the quarantine system. A really good point. It's a really good point. We've now, we're now 18 months into this. So why have we not looked more towards regional quarantine hubs that would absolutely work better than locking people in one building? The quarantine system is broken. It It is almost exactly the same as it was nearly 18 months ago when it was first started. I don't know how many examples these governments need to see. Um, and the other thing that I think that we probably need is like a national body. Um, you could call that a federal, the federal government, but for some reason it's being still being organized by state governments. When there was leaks happening in Perth, uh, it came out that uh, in Western Australia, quarantine workers weren't required to wear masks. Yeah. So it's just crazy that you've got these totally separate bodies not learning from each other. Oh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. They need to get on top of it. Uh, it will be curious to see if they do, though. I feel like we're all just, we're all counting down till we can get that vaccine at the moment. And yeah. everyone's like, ah, whatever. It's like when you don't want to clean your room because you know in a week's time There's someone's going to be a house fire. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or you're like, oh, I'm not going to mow this week, even though I really need to, because next week there's a house inspection. So I'll do it the day before. Yeah. So we're letting everything slowly grow, hoping that the solution is about to happen. And I don't think it will. Uh, uh, and it may so not be we, as successful as we would like it to be, which is. Well, to... and, it's not, and it's not going to be an answer for third world countries, because I think something like. 0.02% of third world country out of all the vaccines that have been uh, administered in the world, 0.02% have gone to third world countries, which is an insane percentage, especially when you consider that that definitely would have gone to the dictators or uber rich in those mm. countries. So while we might be a little behind the eight ball, there are other countries that are still two or three years away from potentially getting fixed. Yeah. So it's wild. Clary wrote on the Facebook group, uh, when Australians returning from China initially needed to stay in decommissioned refugee hostels, juxtaposed to high and low end hotel accommodation for others coming later as it spread around the world, that was already bad. Putting boomers with technology out in the desert would not look good in media clips. This is just a whole other level of different treatment and appears racist. The fact they tried to blame it on the chief health minister health advisor and he came out and said it wasn't his advice looks very dodgy uh yeah i agree i think there's also another element to that in terms of the the um putting boomers out in regional australia uh and that is that i live in a town i live in toowoomba which is a town that was proposed as a regional uh quarantine hub and there is a serious nimby attitude 
there is a serious not in my backyard mm-hmm. attitude here. They don't particularly want it here. Mm. Even though I, I, I'm totally fine with it being here and I think it's safer and for the greater good of Australia, there is people in regional Australia and the, and regional Australia vote for the coalition a lot. <laughs> so yeah, right. there's, there's probably a good reason why they haven't pushed that through so quickly. They don't want to, you know, uh, turn away their voter base. Yeah, that's that's probably right. I hadn't thought about it that way. Stephen, this is the last comment before we move on. Stephen wrote, uh, since March 2020, borders have been closed to all countries unless special permission is given, like sports people and Tony Abbott, and believes India close, uh, and believe India close is only for two weeks, which it uh, is potentially wrapping up. It is accelerating at the fastest pace of any country, a health decision, not racism. Is there is there merit to what he said? Um, I think on a base level that 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 would be the line that the government would take. Mm. Um, I can understand on a on face value how that would be the case, but I do think it's curious the way they grandstand uh, the way they the way the government chose to grandstand it. I think says differently. I think that they thought it would be a really populist decision to make, and, and I think there's a deeper level there. Yeah, more sub. I think that what Stephen is saying is probably correct if uh, this incident was happening in a vacuum. Um, yes, the number is accelerating very quickly, but the number was also accelerating very quickly in America. And we never, and even though he says, yes, the borders were closed, we were granting special permission to a lot of Australians who were coming back. Um, yeah. Whereas in this situation, we are not granting permission to any Australians who want to come back. So I think that they're quite different scenarios. And people will have COVID and people will come back from India with COVID. And that's the reason we have our quarantine protocols in place. So it, it's an unavoidable, when, when we never tried to go for a, we somehow weirdly ended up in a situation where we have gone for a, like, let's lock, let's lock the doors on mm. COVID. But that was never the government's, you know, we, we criticize the government. My thoughts on the government are well known, but that was never the government's policy. We never went for a complete, no cases policy. So we we do need to open the door at some point. We just need to do it in a safe way uh, that is going to expose Australians to the least risk possible. Story number three. NAPLAN, which stands for the National Assessment Program Literacy and Numeracy, is the Australia-wide testing for students in years three, five, seven and nine. And like every year, there is controversy around it. And this time it's coming from your neck of the woods. (laughs) The Queensland Teachers Union have told all teachers and principals of Queensland not to make their kids do the tests. Uh, The Education Minister for Queensland, whose name is, and I'm not kidding, Grace Grace. Yeah, yeah, I know Grace Grace. (laughs) No one else in Australia is aware of this. (laughs) This was news to me and it was the highlight of the story. The name's so nice, she used it twice. Was her last name? Did she marry into a grace? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just aware of her as a politician. <laughs> okay. Uh, grace Grace um, said the Queensland government would continue to advocate for improvements for some form of standardised national testing. Um, but for now, it's NAPLAN. Nick, should kids have to undergo ranking style testings from such a young age? Uh, I don't, I'm not opposed to that necessarily. I think that what is more concerning and, and I am very ignorant to this because I didn't enjoy school, uh, particularly. And so I've tried as little as possible to give it any of my brain power. You've after leaving. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, what I've been told is it can affect the amount of funding a school receives, uh, which may or may not be true. Feel free to correct me. <laughs> um, I didn't see anything on that, but I have also heard that before in the past, so I'm not sure. Just be a bullshit rumor, but if that's the case, then that's really crook because then you leave yourselves open, like most education systems in Australia, to rorting, uh, where they tell dumb kids not to come in or kids that aren't particularly studious or literate. And I have very much heard of that happening. That even happened when I was in school and we uh, used to do some standardized Queensland testing to form our OP, which has since been uh, gotten rid of. But we definitely had kids in my year that were just told, oh, you know, if you want to have today off. Really? Oh, absolutely. And why is that better? What would that achieve? Well, because it strengthens your uh, cohort. Which, which means that technically it, it makes your class look smarter than it is and mm-hmm. therefore we would go up in the rankings and we would all get better end-of-year results. So even the kids that didn't participate, it would help their results by not attending and participating. Uh-huh. And, and then it also gives the school great marketing tools because the school can say, we finished at this or we were the best, um, you know, we were the best co-educational school or, we, or blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Of, th- so, of the three kids that sat the exam from our school. <laughs> we were geniuses. So uh, our plan's always been a fucking issue. And the teachers have always, always hated it and always rallied against it. Why haven't they changed the system? What do they want the system to change? Because I've also heard that about the funding. I read a number of articles uh, to prepare for this. I didn't find that anywhere. The largest um, complaint was that it is stressful for the students. And my question for that is, yes, it probably is stressful for a student, especially if you know you're at a bottom end of the class and and you go, okay, shit, I'm going to have to do this test and there's a chance it's going to come back and say I'm at the bottom 10% of literacy and I'm nine years old. But do the kids find their results out? Yeah, you get sent them. Oh, do they? Yeah. Uh, um, but my question is, would you rather be hit with that hard truth at a young age and then potentially be able to do something about it? Like, are these parents just really trying to shelter their kids from reality? Which is something that's going to happen at some point. It's going to catch up to them. If you're in the bottom 10%, you're going to find out. Yeah, that's true. I mean, for me, it would I would consider it the least stressful test you can possibly do because you don't have to study for it. It's just yeah. it's just how does your brain work? Which I always I loved those tests mm. in school um, because you didn't have to study for them. <laughs> uh, is it more stressful for the teachers because they're worried that it's seen as a reflection on their teaching abilities? Is but, that maybe the bigger issue at play here? But then also, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but teachers don't like that. That's why they become teachers because they want to be the boss. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Queens. Sorry, Naplan, an Australian academic, whatever it is. You're on detention. I'm not going to be getting my kids to do this. Yeah, no. Um, when you say it puts pressure on teachers, yeah, it probably does. But it's also it's like the census. It's also really important for Australia to know where we are at academically and where these next generations are going to be at. So. Let me ask you a question. Do you think the education in Australia, uh, the education system in Australia from kindy right up to tertiary education and through tertiary education, do you think it is operating uh, in the best possible way? It's hard for me to know because firstly, I've got a warped perspective. I was lucky enough to go to a private school. um, So, or I spent some time in a public school, um, but 
the other thing is I haven't gone to school overseas, so it's very hard for me to know what we're up against. Um, yep. I think my experience of the school system was that it, I mean, prepared me largely for the HSC and then to go on and do uni and stuff like that. Uh, what, do you think that it's, do you think that it's not? Do you think that it's missing something? I think our tertiary education system is fundamentally broken. And I, and I am concerned that our uh, primary and secondary school systems are following suit. And uh, that is because I see education as a fundamental right to everyone. And, and that education should be equal regardless of who you are. I actually think that education is exactly the same as electricity mm-hmm. or or any other commodity that should be shared across everyone and protected by a government. And it worries me that that is happening less and less. You when think it comes it's eroding? To tertiary, well, when it comes to tertiary education, it's gone. The ship is sailed. Yeah. Yeah. Like our parents didn't pay for university and it was a hell of a lot harder to get in. Uh, and that's the way it should be. Now we have sold everyone this dream. Like, I mean, to get into economics, you don't, you don't need to get very good results anymore because it's they the university is incentivized to get students in and then the government is covering the loan. Yeah. Uh, and and that's why the dropout rate in tertiary education now is so incredibly high. Uh but let's focus on, but, but let's focus on primary and secondary school because that's where that, that's, that's now bleeding in because now the thought process is to get a reasonable education in Australia you have to go to a private school which in essence is privatized. I mean, that is that is a display of capitalism. And the more money you pay, the better education you'll receive. And even more concerning is that quite often these private schools and the most prestigious sc- private schools are receiving even more government grants than public schools. Quite, this is all, um, you can read this. Mm-hmm. This is public knowledge that quite often private schools and and the more prestigious the private school will receive more funding from the federal government and state government. And that comes down to a number of factors. A, they have better teachers. B, they have better people to write the grant proposals. And C, they have more backers. So it, it, it is spiraling out of control. Like right now, would you send your child, if you're given the opportunity and you had the money, uh, an infinite amount of money, Tim, would you send your child to a public school from one to 12? I think I would send my child to a public school for primary school, for sure. Mm. I think that it's important. I think that it's, I think that it's good to be exposed to, to meet different people, to meet different kids, to, um, to have that, that broader experience. Um, but I do think that when you're then preparing for the HSC or whatever it is now, eight, what is it? It's still called the ATARS. ATARS? Is, it, is it the ATARS now? I don't know. I don't know. You know what anyway. I'm talking about. Yeah, I do I think that that specialized help can make a difference. Um, mm. And the school oh, that I went cool. to definitely, definitely had that. And I, I saw other people, I've seen um, friends um, slip through cracks in, in public schools. Um, so... Yeah, that's sad to see, I think. What about you? Yeah, I would agree. Uh, we've always joked that, like, you send your kid to a public school from one to four or one to three so that they can meet their tough friends so that if they ever get bullied by their rich friends, they, they have people that can kick the shit out of them once they go to a private school. <laughs> so it's strategic. But it's sad that you have to think that way. It's yeah. sad that you have to – like, my parents – 
invested huge amounts of money into my education um, and, and a huge percentage of their their earnings into my education. Like, like it, it nearly sent them broke at times, but they thought, they perceived that that was what had to be done to set me up successfully in life. And in a lot of ways it has, but in no academic ways. Mm-hmm. I would say more from the networks I built and um, the skills I gained from socializing in those circles have held me in better stead than anything I learned at that school. I've had a, I've had an interesting experience to bring it back to the NAPLAN topic um, in terms of my personal education. And I think that this is something that people don't think about very often um, is the flip side of the coin. I think, I think that people often talk about the stresses of a child um, doing those standardized testing and, and that it can be hard on kids who score poorly. And I don't want to discount that. That's definitely, uh, that's definitely real. Um, that's definitely a real experience for kids. But the other side of the coin is it can actually be really beneficial and it can have a big impact on somebody's life um, if they do well. So when I went to primary school, I went to a normal primary school and I, um, there were like quote unquote gifted and talented kids at my primary school. And they were all the kids whose parents called up the school and said, my kid is gifted (laughs) and talented. Please put them in the advanced classes. And my parents weren't like that at all. Mm. And so, um, I was just normal kid going to school, doing regular classes, like school was fun, liked playing basketball and soccer at lunchtime. And when I got to year three was the first time that we did those standardized tests and I scored um, quite highly. And it was a big surprise to everyone, in particular my family, (laughs) who were like, who were like, oh, Tim's smart. And, and uh, off the back of that, I was then given opportunities at school to do, to be put into um, more advanced classes, which no one had ever thought because I wasn't like a super academically focused kid. Um, I My main things, I liked uh, hanging out with my friends and I liked sport at lunchtime. Um, and that led to, I was then, uh, I applied for um, like a, like an opportunity school, mm. which I um managed to get into and then left because I didn't like it because all the kids were nerds. And then um, I got a, I got a scholarship to a private high school that I um, took. And that's what uh, largely what got me access to, to that education. So all of that came from, I mean, and this is all just my experience, those standardized tests were really pivotal in my life when I think about it and when I look back. So I think- See, that- they, had the, they had the exact opposite effect on me. It's really interesting because um, I scored really highly in those tests as well, but I hated school and all of a sudden it heaped a ton of unnecessary pressure on me uh, because they said, well, you should be achieving these results and you're not and resulted in me getting, I once had detention for a whole semester. Oh my once God. Had de- I once had detention every single lunchtime for a semester and I would have to double book my detentions if I got a second one. What, what were you would- doing? When, no, that was because I wasn't getting the correct results. The, the, they would force me into a room to study during lunch. Oh. And, and then on top of that, that dictated the subjects the school pushed me to take. Uh-huh. Like I would, I would have loved to have done drama and PE and home ec and all those types of subjects. Things that I'm really passionate about that I've actually built a career in moving on mm. in life. 
And those opportunities were taken away from me because of this style of testing, because they said, well, no, you need to do math C and physics and German and music. And it was, yeah, it was, it's really interesting to see that we've both had polar opposite experiences from getting similar results in a test. And yet here we are. (laughs) Here we, but it led, it was a crazy path, but it all led to the one podcast. And it's celebrating its first birthday right now. Oh, goodness. How magical. <laughs> I think I'd rather yours. <laughs> hey, hey, we're both doing the same podcast, but someone just rocks up and doesn't have to do any work each week. So Actually, that's true. It's weird that that has gone on for about dollars. All of those detentions <laughs> taught you to rebel early against doing work <laughs> and that it will still get you to the same places. Nick What's your recommendation um, for people to check out this week? If you are not interested in cancel culture and you want to look beyond performative activism, give Michael West Media a follow on Instagram and Facebook. He's a fantastic journalist. Uh, He runs a nice little small media company that is truly independent, um, unlike News Corp who say that they are independent always. Uh, And he did some great breakdowns in his stories of the budget last night and what you can expect. He's very good at keeping the bastards honest, as they would say. How about you? I love that. Nick, that maybe it's taken a year of podcasts and we finally (laughs) got one good Nick pick out of you. Song you 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 watched a TV show that I suggested. Okay, maybe we're a- maybe we're at three. Um, <laughs> my Nick pick is is a movie, and it's actually a movie that Ellie and I watched a couple of weeks ago, and I kind of forgot about, but I loved it. Um, it's a movie called Moxie. It's uh written by Amy Poehler, and it's basically, I would say, it's the closest thing to Mean Girls since Mean Girls. You got to remember that Mean Girls is like twenty years old now. Um, literally, and so uh. Mean Girls was written by Tina Fey. This is written by Amy Poehler. And it's about a group of young girls going through school now. And it's actually about them um, kind of dealing. It's maybe like it's it's quite funny. It's it's pretty funny, but it's them kind of dealing with a lot of problems and challenges that young women would face now that really probably didn't exist back then. A, a lot of them centralized around uh, social media um, and, and kind of bullying and friendship and stuff like that. It's like Mean Girls, it's probably like a young girl movie, but it had a lot of heart and I really enjoyed it and had some great messages in it. So, yeah, I would say check that out. It's sounds really cool. Yeah. It's mean on- Girls is one of my favorite movies of all time. So, Like, good writing is good writing. It doesn't matter if the, girl, if the characters are teenage girls or adult men. If it's well done, mm-hmm. it's well done. It's on Netflix, so check that out. Otherwise, let's get out of here. If you've been listening to us for a while, thanks for hanging out with us for potentially a year. Mm-hmm longer theoretically yeah um and otherwise uh yeah thanks for thanks for jumping on the train um jump in the facebook group we talk about it a lot off air podcast community search it in facebook and hit join and we would love to see your thoughts each week catch you next week bye you've been listening to off air remember to like and subscribe people are entitled to their sexual proclivities 